You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Julie Cohen, co-director with Betsy West of 2021's My Name is Polly Murray, 2018's Academy Award nominee RBG, and the recently released Julia, and Dr. Patricia Bell-Scott, Professor Emerita of Women's Studies and Human Development and Family Science at the University of Georgia. She appears in My Name is Polly Murray and as well in Hal and Henry Jacobs' Lillian Smith, Breaking the Silence. In 2017, she won the Lillian E. Smith Book Award for The Firebrand and the First Lady, Portrait of a Friendship, Polly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt, and The Struggle for Social Justice. Today, we'll speak about the importance of Polly Murray, her friendship with Lillian Smith, and more. Thank you for joining me today, Julie and Dr. Bell Scott. Great to be here. Thank you. I really, I really really looking forward to this conversation. Typically, we just do one person, and today we have two, two very esteemed guests today. So let's just jump right in and kind of get started with, you know, can you each speak briefly about how you came to learn about Polly Murray? Because I didn't know much about her until I started learning about Lillian Smith more, and then, of course, watching the documentary. I came to Polly Murray first uh, through the writings, specifically the family memoir, Proud Shoes. I was a young faculty member looking for a text that treated the issue of African-American family history. And I was particularly interested in looking at a narrative that centered the experience through the eyes of um, a writer who identified as female. And you have to keep in mind, that when I began my career as an academic, uh, Roots was the rage. And I loved that book, but I also knew that there had been some predecessors. And so I discovered uh, Proud Shoes, uh, but was frustrated to find that in in 1976, during this period that I started teaching, it was out of print and remained out of print, intermittently in print and then out of print until about 1999. And so I I have come over these nearly 50 years to know Polly Murray as this groundbreaking um, activist, lawyer, Episcopal priest. But my first introduction to Murray was as a writer. And I find that I have come full circle in that I'm back to looking at her more intensely uh, as a writer. And I was so grateful that in the project, the film, My Name is Polly Murray, we were able to rely upon her spoken word, her poetry, and and her prose. Because I think, I, I should say, I do not want her contributions as a writer to be minimized. Uh, I think that Proud Shoes is a masterpiece and want to do everything I can to push forward her identity as a writer. And I 
would also want to add that it is as a writer, specifically a poet, that Murray said her identity mattered most to her. I mean, despite all these other contributions, her identity as a writer, specifically as a poet, was something she valued enormously and wanted that push forward as people came to know her. In so many ways, that reminds me of Lillian Smith. Julie, how did you come about um, learning about Polly? Yeah, well, I actually think um, the story of how I learned about Polly kind of says something about what it takes to be educated or perhaps to educate oneself. Because actually, as some personal research revealed, I actually first heard the name Polly Murray when I was in college in the late 1980s, taking a women's studies course for which the text was a book, uh, but some of us are brave, a book which Dr. Bell Scott was one of the editors of. Polly's name and work is comes up in several of the essays in that book, which I read and absorbed the book, but the name Polly Murray and Polly Murray's amazing set of contributions to 20th century American history so, somehow didn't stick with me over the years, perhaps because it's, you know, the Polly Murray name just isn't spoken an, enough. Like it actually takes a lot of learning before uh, someone's story is absorbed. I became familiar with the Polly Murray name again in 2017 when uh, my directing partner, Betsy West and I were finishing up our film about Justice Ginsburg. And in some of our research in the edit process, came across the fact that Justice Ginsburg had put Polly Murray's name as co-author of the first brief that uh, RBG wrote for the Supreme Court, arguing that women and men should be equal under the Constitution's 14th Amendment. That felt like sort of an interesting aside that we that we noticed, uh, you know, and, and absorbed uh, the name. And it was really in the process, you know, after you make a documentary, you're kind of running around promoting it a lot and talking about all aspects of the themes the films touches on. And one of the questions that we were asked sometimes in Q and A's was like, whose shoulders did Justice Ginsburg stand on? And since we understood that Pauli Murray was one of the answers to that question, that led to just more, you know, very basic research and Googling. And that brought us back to Dr. Bell Scott because of the book, The Firebrand and the First Lady, which uh, which we read in the course of promoting the film RBG, really for our own interest, and found, you know, Polly's story to be so fascinating, uh, you know, this, this amazing historical figure, and the fact that, at, like, each thing that we learned about Polly Murray, like every, you know, not only the contributions to women's rights, which is where we went in, where, where we came in, but the contributions to, to civil rights, um, the contributions to the way we think about spirituality, the interesting um, aspect of, of Polly's life as a, either a non-binary or trans and or trans person. Um, and then as Dr. Bell Scott says, th th then the writing, like starting to read some of Polly's own really spectacular writing, um, both the poetry book, Dark Testament and, and the book, Proud Shoes are kind of two of my favorite books I've ever read just as a reader, not as a filmmaker. And so that, that, that's kind of what led us uh, back to Patricia and um, to uh, thinking about making a documentary about Polly Murray's life, only possible really, because Polly, like Lillian Smith, it sounds like, was an 
excellent uh, recorder and saver of, of, you know, of a personal archive, something that's really worth doing, at least if you're brilliant and making lots of contributions <laughs> to your fields. I think um, the idea of saving everything you're doing for posterity is, uh, is, is amazing. And Pauli did that with great care and deliberation. And there's a lot of things that both that you just said that my mind was just racing as you were talking. And I want to jump back on before we move into the other thoughts to one thing that you said, Julie, about finding out about Polly through RBG and through that whole process of, of making the documentary about uh, Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, as I watched My Name is Polly Murray, I did keep thinking about Lillian. I thought about specifically about Hal Jacobs when he was talking about his introduction to Lillian Smith, him and his son did the documentary about Lillian Smith called Lillian Smith Breaking the Silence. And initially he did a documentary on Mary Hambidge, who was a weaver in Rabin County, Georgia, Northeast Georgia. And when he started promoting that documentary, people kept asking him, have you heard about Lillian Smith? And he's from Atlanta. And he was like, no. So he started digging into Lillian Smith and finding out about her. And my kind of introduction to Lillian Smith is I didn't know much about her. I found Strange Fruit at a, you know, at a library book sale when I was in grad school. I don't remember if anybody mentioned her in any of my classes. I picked it up, saw the cover, interracial romance, right? And I was like, okay. I'd read Ernest Gaines' Of Love and Dust. I'd read Octavia Butler's Kindred. I'd read multiple you know, novels of African-American men and women about interracial romances. So I was like, she's African-American. So she went on my African-American, you know, in that part of my shelf. Wasn't until later that I read it and started finding out more about her that, you know, come to find out that she's white and from the South. And the more I dug into her, kind of like both of you, the more you dug into Polly, the more I dug into Lillian Smith. I'm like, there's so much here that is important. Why don't we know about her? And I would say the same for Polly and, and Lillian. This is kind of the question, you know, in the film, someone mentions the fact that Polly's story has been, I don't know if I'd say pushed aside, but definitely not within the cultural consciousness, you know, as you were mentioning, Julie. And this reminds me so much of Lil. Uh, can you speak to how these amazing and powerful individuals, you know, who did so much for the world became in essence sidelined in such a way? I know that's really a broad question and maybe not an easy question, but like, why don't we think about Lillian Smith with the civil rights movement or Polly Murray? Well, I, I, I think the reasons are multidimensional. Some of them have to do with uh, Polly and Lillian as, as individuals. Some of it has to do with the, um, the culture or the history, the historical moment in which they lived. Um, and let me just start out with the fact that um, and I'll say Polly identified as presented as as female for much of her adult life uh, so that the culture and people with whom she worked related to her in that respect. And what that meant is you've got this brilliant black intellectual writer activist who presents this female functioning in these arenas where the power structure, even in segregated America, is overwhelmingly male and quite often uh, comprised of ministers, religious leaders. So with that, you get conservative uh, values, which are, um, are sexist. Um, and because she tended to be very young when some of her most important contributions were made, 
there was the feeling that this here's this young upstart, you know, uh, trying to tell us, you know, wise old men uh, what to do. So the historical context was certainly not favorable to someone with Pauli's uh, identity. And, and if we think about the personal level, her temperament, Pauli was an extremely bright person, also very impatient. And so she would try to make her contributions, say what she thought she needed to say. And if it didn't take hold, she always had other irons in the fire, other issues she wanted to raise. And so she would make her contributions and move on. For example, the seminar paper that she wrote in law school at Howard really became the basis, the foundation uh, upon which the Brown decision was constructed. Now, when Pauli made this argument in class, a professor and her students laughed at her. They mocked her. Pauli didn't forget it, but she left Howard uh, in 1944 and went to law school for to do her master's at UC Berkeley. And there, Pauli took that paper as the foundation for what would become another decade of work on women's issues. And so, and 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 so she didn't wait. Uh, she was not in many ways. Uh, an institutionalist in the way that RBG was, who would uh, attach herself to an institution and fight from within. And so what that means is when people write these institutional histories, when you read the institutional histories of the NAACP, you don't see Pauli's name. It's certainly not in large print. She may be in a footnote, though some of the, the NAACP's um, major contributions, benchmarks, breakthroughs have their roots. They rest on the foundation of Pauli's work. So you, you have that issue. Then temperamentally, as I said, she was impatient. She was always more radical and forward thinking than the people with whom she worked. The two, the two meaning Pauli and Lillian, also shared the fact that they were never financially secure. So they were always struggling to provide for themselves and also struggling to balance their two twin passions, social justice and creative work. And that's not easy to do. So what that means is that often, once again, the follow-through that would be required to make sure that your contributions are inscribed in those histories of the moment, they were not always there to make sure that the follow-through showed the mark of their contribution. So, you know, it's complicated issues. And in many respects, they were not people who cared as much about that being in writ large in the history books as they were about making the contributions. There's so much you said. When you said that Polly was impatient, again, my mind went immediately too low, right? That she's just like, do it now, you know, move on. And then you mentioned also a lot of their other similarities, and there was a strong friendship between Polly and Lillian. I'm looking behind you at your wall, and I see that picture of Polly, you know, forgot where it is, and isn't in Connecticut, but in the snow, right? Yes, yes. I was, that's one of the famous pictures of Polly, and I was around at the camp again, just telling you all the stuff that's still up there, opened up a chest, and it's a bunch of Christmas ornaments and Christmas cards. And there's that picture in a Christmas card from Polly to Lil, right? You know, 
Dark Testament, I believe this is the case, was originally published in Lil and Paula Snelling's journal, right? There was a, there yeah. was an essay that Polly did with, um, is it Henry Babcock? I don't remember. Yes. But yes. about pacifism and conscience's, conscience's objection to World War II. Yes. So can you mention, I know this could be a lengthy discussion of booking in itself too, but can you just kind of mention that relation, talk about that relationship? And the mentorship that Lillian did, because one thing I learned from you as well is Lil's impact on Proud Shoes, especially yes. the beginning of it. Yes. Polly was about 32 years old when she wrote her first letter to Lillian Smith. And that letter was prompted by Polly's excitement about an early issue of South Today, that journal. And she was inspired by the fact that she, she recognized that Lillian was a writer activist and that she was in many ways a role model uh, for Polly. And Polly was in her about to enter the second year of law school at the time. And she had struggled for several years about whether or not she should try to become a writer or should she choose uh, law school. And she chose law because she felt that as um, someone, as an African-American person, someone who identified as female without family resources, that it made more sense to, to go with law school. And Lillian had not met Polly, didn't really know her, but knew of her work with the Odell Walla case. She saw this young woman as a tremendous activist and fighter for this uh, sharecropper in Virginia who was eventually executed. And she reached out to be supportive. And she began to sort of teach Polly things about what it meant to be a writer, about how uh, exhausting it, uh, the the emotional uh, responsibility uh, can be. She talked to her about patience. She talked to her, particularly when Polly started to work on Proud Shoes, about how, it was, how important it was not to let the law background, the, the legalese, that jargon spill over into the writing of Proud Shoes. There's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it at my fingertips, but she says to her, uh, don't cover up your heart, allow yourself to see, help the reader feel it, help the reader be there, and to move away from the training that you've received so that you make this experience real. Lillian Smith talked to Polly about how important it was to protect yourself after you've done some particularly um, revealing writing. She said, publishers don't understand how much time we need to recover and to heal from revealing, disclosing our interior. So you take the time, no matter how long it takes, you take the time. So she talked to her a lot about the process of writing, what it means to be a creative who's trying to give your all and make this connection with a reader. And Lillian Smith was central to those early chapters of Proud Shoes. She was the first reader, and it was it was to Smith that I think Polly called Smith the shepherd of those first few chapters. So it was a really important relationship. And then Polly, you know, saw her. Here's a woman speaking out and living it, daring to stay at home in the South to do this work, to speak out on issues of social justice and try to do your writing. So Smith was just really important as, a, as an example of what it means to be a writer activist. That's a relationship I want to, I want to learn so much more about, especially her, her mentorship. But again, 
the more you talk, the more I see them, I understand why they connected, you know, wanting to be seen as an artist, wanting to be seen and wanting to move things forward too. There's so much kind of connecting in there. And as you mentioned, Julie, Polly left behind a treasure trove of materials. And when we think about archival research, we think about scholars, about us going, us as scholars, not as film directors going into archives and digging through, you know, boxes and all this type of stuff too. And I found an interview with you about, my name is Polly Murray, and you're speaking about the archival resources. And you mentioned this, the interview, there was more than 40 hours of treasures of audio tapes of Polly doing oral histories, doing interviews, reading her autobiography, I think, um, as, the, as you have in the film, doing kind of a lifetime worth of work. When someone's show, showing up at Polly's house to do an interview, Polly pulls out a tape recorder, double records, basically interviewing the interviewer, uh, saves it and makes sure it all ends up in an archive. Really amazing, uh, this collection of material that made it tell the story in a really vivid way. Can you talk some, you know, about the importance of archival work as a film director? Yeah, I mean, an archive... And what, and, and what you found, sorry. Sure, sure. I mean, an archive is uh, incredibly important to a filmmaker, just like it is to a scholar. But I will say we're kind of looking for different things. In some ways, you know, our searches are easier because it's not as comprehensive sometimes. You're not wanting to, you know, to understand the full scope of Pauli's life. We turned to scholars like Dr. Bell Scott and to Pauli's own autobiographical works. Um, but for purposes of making a film, there's something very special, special, first of all, about seeing somebody's writing in their own hand. It's not just that, or from their own typewriter or a combination. It's not just that Pauli wrote this uh, incredible, really, paper in the third year at Howard Law School. Like, when you wanted to look for it, there it is. You could actually literally, with those little white gloves that they give you at, a, at an archive, touch the paper where Pauli, like in a way that, you know, I wonder about scholars of the future when you're just seeing something digital, it's not the same, this typed with some, with some cross outs, with some notes. This was like before whiteout even, <laughs> you know, we're talking about 1943, where Pauli is literally appears to be having the thoughts you're kind of almost feeling it in real time, how Polly is having the thoughts that are going to become the basis of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund's argument for Brown versus Board of Education. Like, oh, wait a second, here's how sociological studies about the impact of segregation, the, the impact of segregation on Black children, like here's how this fits into a legal argument that tells you that Plessy versus Ferguson is wrong. And Polly Murray is having that thought, citing the sociologist and writing it out. Actually, the part of, the, uh, the part of that paper that is uh, specifically about overturning Plessy versus Ferguson is just a few, pa a few pages at the end written out, not as a fully fleshed out argument, but written out as a series of like 14 notes. Like, hey, this, this is why it's wrong. This is why it's wrong. And they're all really smart. And a number of them you know, literally end up in the brief. So that, that, that's, that's one area where it's really, you know, not only fascinating, but kind of joyous as a filmmaker to come across these materials. And of course, in our minds, the kind of holy grail is um, audio and videotape. And the fact that Polly had saved all of these audios, which weren't, you know, th these aren't like, um, I don't, you know, this isn't like the Library of Congress showing up to, to interview Polly Murray. This is often 
PhD student in the midst of an oral history project, something, I don't know how common these still are today, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the in the 70s, there were like many of them done and Pauli participated in many of them. I just got an um, email about one. Yeah. So thinking about that. So and they're quite good in some ways, but much more useful, I think, for for certainly for our purposes. And I would imagine for Dr. Bell Scott's as well than a, a journalist's um, more cursory interview. Often these are going through. Um, there was one in particular um, written by a then I believe PhD candidate who went on to become a scholar, uh, Jenna McNeil, where the interview is five and a half hours long and it goes very systematically through Pauli's life with the two at this point, older and younger women really arguing with each other about what the right stance to take is in activism in a way that says so much about so many things. I mean, about activism in general, about race, about generational differences, about like what it's like for two brilliant, but uh, you know, at the time not recognized enough minds to sort of meet and hash things out. So I feel like, I don't think we probably would have made this film if it weren't for the audio tapes. The strength of Pauli's voice, not only voice in the way that we talk about it sort of metaphorically, like, oh, the voice, but, but, but like Pauli's literal voice is so direct and so, so much an attempt to connect with the listener, even, even across, you know, even across the ages and even across sort of like the life death boundary. Like here's someone who, who passed away decades ago, speaking to modern listeners trying to be heard and trying to be understood in an era where actually a lot of Pauli's ideas, because they were so far ahead of their time, make a lot more sense now than they might have when Pauli was speaking them. It was really an enlightening and like kind of revelatory experience, I think, for everyone on our team, kind of like regardless of gender or race, people were sort of all reacting in this very personal way to hearing these words. So I'm, I'm sure you've had similar experiences listening to Lillian Smith's words. It's just, there's just something very special about the intimacy of, of audio tapes. L Lillian Smith just reminds me so much of my grandmother, that white Southern, you know, woman, but there's just something about her that, you know, is really kind of, you know, feeling. You mentioned the tactile aspects of the archive. And I think about taking students when I was at Auburn, taking them to the archives and them actually handling you know, what we were, we, this is an early American history course, they were handling bills of sale for enslaved individuals, right? And I remember one student, or maybe a couple, and this may have been the student evaluation, but talking about actually touching those that having a different impact on them than actually seeing them online. Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're actually holding something that somebody has written for one, within the case of Polly Murray, and you see that thought process going through. But within the case of them looking there, of individuals being sold. And I think the one that they held is the one that always sticks out in my mind. There's no names, there's nothing. It's just calculations. And on the back, it says bill of sale for Negroes. That's it. So that visual seeing the individuals being taken to that level, and then the tactile aspects of it, you know, is just always something that stands out with me with the archives. And then you also mentioned too that life death divide. I was actually listening to one of the recordings that, I'm, that we found at the camp of Lillian Smith about the journey. And she's talking about how individuals don't necessarily die. They physically die, 
but their memory remains, right? That they stay here. And she talks about this couple's kid. And she's like, I never met this person in real life, but I know him through them, right? And on her tombs, on her headstone at the camp is a quote from the journey. It's probably one of my favorite quotes. It says this, death can kill a man. That is all it can do. Uh, that is all it can do to him. It cannot end his life because of memory. So I think that the archives, whether it's audio or, you know, the tactile textual are so important, not just for scholars, but like you said, for you as well to tell the story, but just anybody, there's just something about it, which leads me to kind of this last question. And this is going to be a little bit long. I know I apologize, but I think there's a lot of important things here. So at the, be- I don't remember this at the beginning or whatever, but it's, it's definitely in the trailer. Um, Dr. Bell Scott mentions this, that we cannot teach American history without teaching about Polly Murray. And during her acceptance speech at the 2017 Lillian E. Smith Book Awards, and this is at the end of Howe and Henry Jacobs' documentary on Lillian Smith, Dr. Bell Scott quoted a speech by Polly. Um, and Polly Murray said this to her audience, it took grace under pressure for astronauts to brave the unknown and open a new frontier. For James Meredith to enroll as the first black student at the University of Mississippi under military guard. For Rosa Parks to refuse to give up her seat to white passengers knowing that she would be arrested. And for Lillian Smith to write about the psychosis of white supremacy and align herself with the civil rights movement. As women of conscience, we have the responsibility of carrying on the great pioneering tradition of the valiant women who have gone before. That's the end of the quote. So we've talked about Polly, we've talked about Lil, but I want to end just by asking each of you, who are some of the other valiant women who have gone before that we need to remember that we may not necessarily as a collective consciousness think about or know? Dr. Bell Scott's one of them, definitely. I am still, I I guess I would say, uh, almost still having gotten over the loss of Eileen Clark Hernandez who was the second president of the National Organization for Women. She is the only woman of color who has been a national president of NOW, very instrumental in the, in the founding in the early days of NOW, a labor act. And I guess I should say the, the people I want to mention very briefly are all friends of Pauli. So there's this synergy there. So there's Eileen, Eileen Clark Hernandez, there's Dovey uh, Johnson Roundtree, who was a minister and an activist, uh, about whom there is a recent biography, but really important civil rights activist in, who lived in D.C., was also a friend of Pauli's, also went to Howard University. I should say Eileen and Dovey are both Howard U. alums. Maida Springer Kemp, who was one of Pauli's uh, lifelong friend, friends, who was a Black woman of Panamanian ancestry who was involved in an international labor movement. And Pauline, I mean, and and Maida hasn't really gotten her due, even though there is a biography of her. And then the last person, also a friend of Pauli Murray's, was uh, Pauline Redmond Coggs from Milwaukee, a social worker and activist who was also a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. All these are African-American women who are still just footnotes in histories of African-American history, civil rights, and women's rights, and they deserve to be moved forward. Julie. Um, You know, I'm not going to give as comprehensive a list (laughs) because I'm just afraid of who one leaves out a name. 
coming to my mind, maybe it isn't gonna be, it might be viewed in some circles of, oh, we do know about her, but um, Mary McLeod Bethune, who makes a brief uh, visual appearance in, in our film, but Gust is someone who, so when I was little girl, my mom gave me a book called Women of Courage that I think was meant to, it was a book for kids and young adults that I think was meant a response to the famous uh, Profiles in Courage, because this is around the right, the right era. I probably read this in the early uh, 70s. And one of the women profiled was Mary McLeod Bethune. And I was like, this is an amazing story. Like, I want to hear more about this person. And I kind of waited because I, 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 I was probably in first or second grade at this time. I kind of waited for like, when is the good, when are we going to get in my social studies class in school? When are we going to come to the Mary McLeod Bethune chapter? And like, it never happened. And it just, you know, I think there's a need to hear more of these stories of the role of women, of African-Americans, of African-American women, you know, in education. And, but then also just in terms of even people that we have heard about, you know, even in Eleanor Roosevelt, who's certainly famous, like is, is the extent of the role that she played in FDR's presidency and in the development of 20th century America, like has that been proper, is that really properly recognized and appreciated? I kind of think no. And I think you could go in the same direction talking about just, all, you know, all, all kinds of people in activist movements even, you know, mm -hmm. the, the women who played such key roles in, in civil rights movement, um, the black women who played such key roles in the overall women's liberation movement and yet didn't at the time weren't pushed weren't elevated as as the leaders of that which isn't necessarily meant to disparage pe the people like Gloria Steinem who very much was the face of the women's liberation movement and even at the time in great respect to her really always went out of her way to attempt to elevate her partners in this movement, but like no one wanted to go, like she was the beautiful white woman who had been a Playboy bunny. It was like kind of irresistible to make her the face of it. Um, and probably actually even her story isn't understood as, as fully as it should be. So there, there's plenty of work to do. I mean, I think our um, Tina Liu, um, the Yale professor who happens to be the head of Pauli Murray College has a great soundbite that we use at the end of the film where she's saying like the people who are most studied and respected and understood are not necessarily the same people who had the greatest impact mm -hmm. on history. Like, yeah. and if you think that what you learned in school all the way, including in graduate school is, is like the full story, then you're probably naive. See, I mean, when you were talking, I was I, I was looking at the letters from Lillian Smith to kind of see if any if she mentioned anybody that, that Dr. Bell Scott mentioned, because you mentioned um, Mary McLeod Bethune, and you know, there's connection with Lillian Smith because um, there's that famous photograph with with Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Lil. Mm -hmm. if, if you just type in Lillian Smith and Mary McLeod Bethune, that's the picture that pops up, right? And there was a friendship there. I found out that. Bethune met Calvin, Lillian's dad, I guess in Florida, she was over there. So that's when they first met. Lillian would have been a teenager at the time. And then later, they actually start a friendship. And there's a letter that Lillian writes that, you know, I remember you being with my dad, and we didn't know each other then, but now we're friends. 
And that 1943 interracial gathering that I want to learn more about, she invited Bethune. And Bethune accepted to come, but she couldn't because of health. So all of this kind of synergy that, that you mentioned, these individuals who are connected with one another, right? I mean, one of the women that I learned about recently that I had no clue about, and I didn't know much about the United Farm um, Farm Workers, you know, strike and Cesar Chavez and everything too, but Dolores Huerta, mm-hmm. right? Learning about her. So there are all these stories and of individuals and all these individuals' lives who, like you said, had an impact that we don't study about. And as a literary scholar, you know, Pauline Hopkins, who there's more work on her done, Alice Dunbar Nelson, there's um, Tara Green has a new book, I think, coming out on her, but an African-American male author like Frank Yerby, who I do work on, right, from Augusta, Georgia. I mean, there are all these things that we don't learn about in our educational, you know, journey, that it's almost like we have to go out and find them ourselves. We do, and we need to constantly be asking why. Right. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. And if you if you haven't already done so, go check out My Name is Polly Murray on Amazon Prime. And also check out um, How and Henry Jacobs, Lonely and Smith, Breaking the Silence. I'll put a link to those in the description. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.